Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Hey everyone, we're back. Historical Coincidences was a big hit with our fan base, so guess what? It's a part two. That's right, Phil, the sequel. And our sequel's ever as good as the original? Well, in this case, it is. We had a blast talk about the original top five. So let's expand on that initial episode and get into the coincidental, the odd, and maybe even a little weird. You got it. It's a part two episode of history's most coincidental events. Welcome to the missing chapter, everyone. Before we begin today's episode of The Missing Chapter, I just want to give a quick shout out to my beautiful niece, Kyla. Kyla, happy 14th birthday. In season two, episode 29, happy birthday to who? I told the story behind the iconic song that has become synonymous with birthday celebrations around the world. And you've heard Phil and I wish our loved ones happy birthday on past episodes of The Missing Chapter. Now, we want to extend that on-air shout-out opportunity to you, our loyal listeners. Email us at themissingchapterpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram and let us do the rest. Birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, what better way to celebrate life's accomplishments than with a personalized message on one of Spotify's most popular podcasts? So email us today at themissingchapterpodcast at gmail.com or message us on social media and let's get started. I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Hornder. And we look forward to adding one of your celebrations to the History Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Missing Chapter. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Hornder. Phil, today we are drinking an exceptional cup of coffee. We brewed Utica Coffee Roasting Company's Dark Chocolate Raspberry Truffle. This is one of my favorites. I know it's considered maybe a holiday uh, blend. It comes back, um, you know, every year around the same time, but this is one of my favorites. Yeah, no, there's three parts to that. The dark chocolate, the raspberry and the truffle. And I would say each one you could kind of distinctly taste when you're drinking the coffee. hundred percent agree. And again, we, we included a little bit of caramel macchiato. That's sure. all we did. A little splash of creamer and we're good for the day. I mean, it, they're so good with their coffees, with their flavor profiles. It's amazing. I, I'm really enjoying yeah, it. It's fun. Now, speaking of enjoying things, we're gonna we're gonna put a a, a big um, ask out there for mm-hmm. our listeners. Don't forget to follow us. Don't forget to um, uh, click the like button on social media and on your Spotify and Apple, uh, whatever platforms you use. It really helps us to kind of see where the demographics are. It also helps you stay notified. I know some people have reached out and said, uh, "Hey, how come we've missed a couple episodes?" So right. make sure you click the subscribe button and click the follow button on whatever platform you're using. It helps us and it'll help you stay up to date. Right. If you want to give us a star rating, if you want to leave us a comment online, it's nice. It's nice for other people to see if they're looking for a, a podcast to get involved with. It certainly helps us. And, and we uh, we definitely appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're going back to the top five historical coincidences. We mm-hmm. had uh, some great feedback with the part one. We love our top fives. Yeah. You know, um, we're, I think we're gonna... they might be my favorite ones to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. That's nice. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Right. That and the mysteries, I think, if I'm right. I do like the mysteries. Yeah. The mysteries yeah. Have, have become fun, too. Okay. But sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, that's fine. <laughs> so listen, the, the top five historical coincidences, part two, um, were mind blowing. Mm-hmm. You know, we, mm-hmm. we did a little research for part one. 
got the great feedback and we said, man, are there, there are there even more? There must be, right? And then sure enough, secondary research shows it's quite a bit. Right. Right. So could there possibly be a part three to this? Why not? Maybe. A trilogy. Right. So, so yeah, there, it, there's no particular order. At least no I particular didn't do order. That's, you took the words right out of my mouth. It's not like, you know, my, my first one is is five on my list. I just I chose five that I think our listeners will enjoy. And that kind of uh, resonated with me. All right. So why don't you kick it off? I'll, okay, I'll give you the so, honors. So I'm going to start with author Mark Twain. Okay. Author Mark Twain was born in 1835. 1835 was a year that Halley's Comet was visible from Earth. That's a phenomenon, Phil, that occurs just once every 76 years. Pretty amazing. Okay? Yeah. So that in itself, not very impressive. So perhaps that's not a huge coincidence, but in 1910, um, when Halley's Comet was visible again, yep. that's when Mark Twain passed away. So he was born on a Halley Comet day, and he died the day after Halley's Comet appeared the second time around. That is pretty coincidental. Here's another part to that. Okay. Twain had actually predicted and hoped for this very outcome, stating, quote, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. It's coming again next year, and I expect to go out with it. In fact, it'll be a great disappointment if I don't go out with Halley's Comet. Well, Phil, that's not only like coincidental, but that's almost prophetic. How right. do you how do you go from hey being birthed to uh, with with Halley's Comet to saying yeah I'm going to die and the very next day have it happen? That's yeah, pretty I, unbelievable. You know, and and the fact that it was with him, he's kind of like an intriguing figure in terms of how he wrote. Yeah, I think it's fitting that he would have died in some unique way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good one. All right, it's a good way to start. So, uh, my first one here um, goes back to Mexico. I talk about Mexico a lot with you because it was where my wife and I had our honeymoon. We love Mexico. It was a great place to uh, to vacation there and a honeymoon. So we're going back to um, a couple different years here, but the people of Mexico have suffered through three major earthquakes mm-hmm. um, and a bunch of minor ones. I shouldn't say minor. All earthquakes are pretty major, but each occurred on September 19th, but in different years. Okay. Okay. So three of these major earthquakes, the first took place in September 19th, 1985, more than 10,000 people were killed. Hundreds of buildings collapsed. The second struck in 2017 and was responsible for the deaths of 360 people. The most recent one um, hit this past year, September 19th Mm. with one death reported. Uh, so now Mexico City, in, in lieu of this, they've run practice earthquake alarms uh, every year on that very date, September 19th. Wow. wow. But the irony of, uh, or coincidence, I should say, of having uh, to the day, September 19th. So we got to mark our calendars for next year and pray right. that that doesn't happen again. Okay, Phil. So for this next one here, we're going back to March 27th of 2021 when we released our season one episode, um, Blaze of Glory, it was episode 27 of season one and pretty popular episode for mm-hmm. season one, actually. And it was um, one that I had kind of known a little bit about, but it was the car that killed James Dean. All right. I, I had to bring this back. So we'll, we'll give you a little bit of a synopsis for this one uh, for the part two historical coincidences. But if you want to go back, remember season one, episode 27, um, which is almost, ironically enough, 
two years ago to the uh, day. Yeah. Um, so in the case of the car that kills James Dean, there's a real question of whether, you know, we're looking at just unfortunate series of events or a curse, um, or maybe it's just really bad engineering. We don't know. But Alec Guinness, and we played this clip on that episode, saw the sinister looking car, he called it. And he told James Dean, if you get in that car, you'll be found dead uh, by this time next week. Seven days later, he was found dead in the yeah, car. Yeah, and I remember that episode. You actually, you played audio of an interview with him. Yeah. Uh, very eerie. Very much so, yeah. yeah. Um, those parts from that Porsche 550 Spider were resold, uh, went in to cause several other accidents. We won't ruin everything uh, for everybody who hasn't listened to this episode, but a lot of weird occurrences from the parts that came from his, his Porsche uh, 550 Spider, including... Two independent uh, fatalities, tons of injuries, mm -hmm. and just a whole idea of, of a curse uh, beyond uh, just that fatal incident with James yeah. Dean. Well, my number two actually makes me think of the first episode we did, our top five coincidences in, in history. Uh, the name Violet Jessup. Violet Jessup. Oh, yes. Who had been both on the Titanic and the Britannica uh, for their sinkings. Yep. So in 2014... I think many of our listeners will probably remember what I'm referencing here. In 2014, there were two tragic plane incidences involving Malaysian air, Malaysian air flights. The first was when a passenger plane was shot down over Ukraine. The second, when another plane disappeared without a trace somewhere over the Indian Ocean in one of the greatest aviation mysteries of all time. And I believe Netflix just came out with a, with a documentary on this. Beyond the fact that both incidences involved the same airline, Malaysian Air, and happened in a very short period of time, there was another striking coincidence. And this is where the Violet Jessup, it kind of resonated with me uh, with regards to her. A Dutch cyclist by the name of Martin de Jong was scheduled to take both flights, but cheated death in both cases by bumping his plane ticket at the 11th hour when cheaper options became available. He was scheduled to be on both and ended up on different flights. So you cheat death once, you consider yourself very blessed, very fortunate. You do it twice, you start to think, maybe there's something else here yeah. uh, at work. Yeah, uh, the, the guy, of course, he's slipping my mind now, who who avoided uh, or survived, I should say, the, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes. You hear um, some stories of... of some people in 9-11 yep. who avoided some flights that were involved. Um, boy, that's a good one. Number three for me, Phil, um, our, our hardcore listeners are going to know we enjoy sports, specifically baseball. So I'm going to bring in a baseball element to this. Love it. One of the greatest Pittsburgh Pirates uh, of all time, if not the most famous Pittsburgh Pirate of all time, right fielder Roberto Clemente. Oh, yeah. So he made baseball history by becoming the first Latin American player, and at that point, the 11th in the entire major league, to reach 3,000 hits, uh, and it happened in 1972. So the coincidence of all of this, this highly anticipated milestone, would actually be his last hit ever, according to MLB on the major league field. His 3,000th hit was his last hit. The Hall of Famer was unfortunately killed shortly after in a plane crash off the coast of Puerto Rico while en route to a humanitarian trip in Nicaragua. Oh, my gosh. That's insane. Yeah. And you know what I can remember? Mm -hmm. 3,000th hit of? Yeah. Derek absolutely. Jeter. Derek yeah. Jeter. 
Yeah. Wow. I, I guess I've never really known that. I, that's one of the reasons. why. Yeah. I, I, mean, you, I mean, you know, he was was unfortunately, you know, that untimely death. Um, but I didn't realize the 3000th hit element was his last to, one was his last wow. hit in the major leagues. Well, I'm going to go in a different direction here. Um, I think this falls under the category of eerie, mm. gory, and it actually involves uh, an episode that you did. Oh, in Edgar Allan Poe's 1838 novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, four man crew was shipwrecked and lost at sea, no food, no water. Excuse me. Ultimately, the team decides they must turn to cannibalism to okay. survive. Um, and, you know, we, of course, we've seen some of those movies that, that unfortunately is the only choice they have. They draw straws to decide who's going to be sacrificed so the rest can live. The character that's chosen and unfortunately eaten that's was horrible. named Richard. Yeah. Richard Parker. So in 1884, a real ship was shipwrecked and one of the sailors on board you guessed it, also named Richard Parker. He becomes sick after ingesting somehow mm -hmm. seawater. The rest of the crew decided out of desperation to kill and uh. eat Richard Parker before he became too tainted by disease. The remaining men lived, mm -hmm. they were saved, but they were all charged with murder once they got back to shore. If that's not an Edgar Allan Poe uh, skit, I, I, I don't know what it is. All right, Phil, for my next one, I actually had to reach out to a friend of ours, a colleague of ours, someone who's been on the show quite often, Tim Field. Mm. He's our music extraordinaire, um, very knowledgeable in history and music alike. So I saw this, um, this story. I reached out to Tim. Tim, actually, I, I think you remember, came up at the end of the day and said, listen, you, you, I, you can't be talking about this guy. Right. I said, yeah, I am. He's like, oh my gosh, what a fascinating story. So he, he added to the story that's already here. Um, I think we could have expanded this out to be an entire episode, which maybe we, we still maybe do. we can. But there's a guy by the name of, and I hope I'm pronouncing this uh, this right. So Tim, you're gonna have to correct me if I'm saying this wrong. Arnold Schoenberg, Schoenberg. Um, he develops the influential twelve tone system of composition. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm gonna do this justice. But the best way to um, understand it is to actually listen to it. So I had to, because Tim, Tim was explaining this, it was going way over my head, but it's a new musical system that essentially, as, as Tim said, you're not going to walk away humming. Okay. You're not, it's not going to be stuck in your head. It honestly doesn't sound like it's any sort of beginning and end to a song. A lot of songs are storytelling. They have a beginning, they have a middle, they have an end, um, and it, it gets caught in your head. Well, entire operas are involved in this 12-tone music a very radical departure from everything traditional. So it, it's very hard to explain on paper. Do yourself a favor and uh, and listen to it, look it up and listen to what it sounds like. But this person is so influential that he's called by some the father of modern music, but he had severe, ready? Triskaidophobia. <laughs> Triskaidophobia. Triskaidophobia, I think it Triskaidophobia? is. Triskaidophobia? Triskaidophobia. There it is. Good, sure, though. sure. Uh, a fear of the number 13. Okay. Okay. Um, and even renumbered the 13th part of one of his song cycles, 12A, to avoid using the number altogether. Hmm. Okay. So he was born on September 13th, 1874. He ended up dying, ready for this, on Friday the 13th, oh. 
at age 76. And when you do the math, seven plus six is 13. Wow. Um, but yeah, very, very influential musician. Uh, we might have to bring Tim and in, in do an, uh, an episode or maybe he can help me pronounce I that. I think that's a great idea. Number 13. I think that's a great idea. I still don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. I even looked it up on Google. I'm like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to remember that by the time we start recording. I think you did, you did an, an admirable job. Oh, thank you. I'm going to take us to the Lincoln assassination for my number four. Um, and, and you think to yourself, well, how much more is there to learn about the Lincoln assassination? True. I think this, this coincidence might be new for some, for some listeners at home. While John Wilkes Booth is now best known as the assassin of um, President Lincoln, obviously, it wasn't like he was a faceless nobody before right. that night. Both John and his brother Edwin were born into family of actors and each obviously became thespians themselves. However, while Edwin was renowned for his acting ability and kind of his gentle, quiet personality, John was known as being much more belligerent and, and a kind of a temperamental actor. Considered average at best, John was less popular than his brother and had a bigger reputation for the tantrums he would throw in, his alcoholism, than he was for his onstage performance. Mm -hmm. Here we go, Phil. Just six months prior to the assassination, the assassination that would you know, ultimately turn our country's uh, history on its head. The brothers performed together, which was rare. Mm. They performed together in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, a play that notably ends in the betrayal and assassination of Rome's most famous emperor. Wow. Okay, my last one, Phil, uh, centers around an author by the name of Diane Madsen and a topic that I've always admittedly... Um, kind of enjoy delving into and reading about myself, Jack the Ripper. Okay. And the kind of the, the controversy and the mystery that still resonates today as to who the identity of that famed serial killer actually is or right. was. So Diane Madsen uh, is a multi-award-winning mystery writer um, specializing in literary giants. And her main character, Dee Dee McGill, is an insurance investigator who tracks down criminals in kind of a deductive Sherlock Holmes style. So not a surprise that Madsen herself is a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. So she's done research on Sherlock Holmes. She's done research on uh, Sir Conan Doyle. And if you remember, I did season one, an episode that talked about, you know, where the, the inspiration for that Sherlock Holmes oh, character yes. came from. Yes. So during Madsen's meticulous research for the book, The Conan Doyle Notes, The Secret of Jack the Ripper, Madsen uncovered something kind of interesting. That during that time when London's best detectives were really struggling to come up with any sort of leads as to who Jack the Ripper actually was, they actually went separately to Conan Doyle and his mentor, the inspiration for the character Sherlock Holmes, Joseph Bell. Okay. Went to those two deductive characters, figures in real life, presented them with the evidence and asked them to develop a profile and determine who the Jack, who Jack the Ripper actually was. Now, both of them came up with the identities that they believed based on the evidence this killer was. The findings were never used, which is very odd to me. Yeah. Um, by authorities. But both Conan Doyle and his mentor, Joseph Bell, reviewed the clues for the Ripper case and both identified the same suspect. The suspect for both of them was a um, Aaron Kosminski, a 23-year-old Polish immigrant who ended up dying in an asylum. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. But separate from one another, you had the person who wrote the Sherlock Holmes books. Yeah. His mentor who inspired Sherlock Holmes. They both identified the same exact per person out of that entire pool of possibilities. We go back to what are the chances? What are the chances? That's amazing. So that's amazing. Yeah, I, I liked that. That's one. a good one. That's a good one. Now, this next one, I, I think we're back into let's see, season two, if I remember correctly, the sum of all scriptures. Yes, season two. Um, which, uh, if you're listening back a couple months uh, when we had Dawn McKinney, our hometown mm -hmm. history winner, that was one of her favorite episodes. She said so. I and she's not alone. Out. Yeah, she's not alone. Yeah. So it's kind of just a cool, like coincidental kind of thing, um, mm -hmm. you know. But it, listen, this is this is amazing. This next story, I I really. I love this one. So the seemingly meaningless sentence, ready? Here was I like a psalm. All right. So if, okay. uh, for those of you that don't know, that was William Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Okay. But this seemingly meaningless sentence, some people have figured out that is an anagram. So if you switch the letters around, here was I like a psalm, you can actually take the letters, mix them around and spell out William Shakespeare. Okay. Okay. They consist of the same letters and only the same letters. All right. Is that a big deal? Which means you're not adding or taking not it. adding okay. or taking okay. away. It, I mean, who cares? That's a, all right. That's kind of cool. But what, what's the big right. deal? Right. The forty-sixth word in Psalm forty-six in the King James Bible is shake. Hmm. The forty-sixth word from the end is spear. It's spelled S-P-E-A-R. So the 46th word in Psalm 46 in the beginning is shake. The 46th word from the end is spear. William Shakespeare's age when the King James Bible was first completed in 1611, guess what? 46 years old. In the original 1611 King James Bible, the word spear was actually spelled S-P-E-A-R-E. -E, wow. Which some people argue is the actual spelling. However... This larger point remains true here, that in Psalm 46, the word shake is 46 words from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Spear is 46 words from the end. So one theory is that this suggests that Shakespeare worked on the King James translation and devised this way to leave his calling card, kind of like a, you know, Shakespeare was here kind of sign. Um, or maybe one of the translators was maybe just a, a big fan of his, but maybe it means nothing. Maybe it's just weird coincidence. No one really knows, but... Uh, one more weird coincidence, Shakespeare was 46 in 1610, which is about when the translation was being completed. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.